We're in the middle of this series looking at what does it mean to be disciples of Jesus? What does it mean to be followers of Jesus? And all of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they give a significant portion of their uh, story of Jesus writing about discipleship, writing about following Jesus. And we're actually in a passage, Mark 10 is right in the middle of Mark's gospel where he's talking about what does it mean for people who call themselves Christians, what does it mean for them to follow Jesus? That's what it means to be a disciple, is to follow Jesus, to learn from him, to sit at his feet. So if you are a Christian this morning, you are a disciple You are a follower of Jesus, and we need to listen to what Jesus has to teach us today. But if you're not a Christian and you're listening in, this is what Jesus calls Christians to. And so when you see Christians not doing this, you have the right to call us out. But we also want to present to you this beautiful picture of what it means to follow Jesus. And so whether you're a Christian or not, I hope you'll listen and learn from Jesus this morning. Mark 10, we're going to look at verses 32 through 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's just Jesus' way of referring to himself, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And so Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first Among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, this is your word, this is your truth. We pray now through your spirit that you would bind our hearts to it and shape us 
into followers of your son, Lord, who imitate his service. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week, last Sunday, uh, the 2020 Summer Olympics, I know in 21, but they called it 2020, the Summer Olympics concluded, uh, the, the closing ceremonies, and uh, well, the U.S. came out on top. We had the most gold medals and silver medals and, and bronze medals. But that closing ceremonies, it, it capped off 16 days of people all around the world tuning in on TV or listening on the radio or going online and watching the greatest athletes in the world competing against one another for one thing, to stand on the podium, to get the gold medal. These are people who have trained their entire lives, competition after competition, They have disciplined their bodies to be the best with the one hope that they would stand alone and receive the gold medal. To be the best, to be the greatest. We have a name, a phrase that we give to athletes like this who compete for the best. We call them the goats, the greatest of all time. You know, Simone Biles went into this Olympics, everyone saying she was the GOAT in gymnastics, and she probably is. But we've got GOATs in all sort of sports. You you can argue whether LeBron James or Michael Jordan is the GOAT or someone else. Tiger Woods is the GOAT of golf. We, we, We have this phrase, greatest of all time. That's what every athlete wants to be. What does it mean to be great? What what does it mean to be great in your mind? This morning, Jesus is going to teach us as his followers what it means to be great. What what does it mean to rise above everyone else? To stand there on the podium and receive glory. What does it mean to be truly great? Is that something that you want Do you want to be great? Jesus is going to teach us what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. And if you want to take notes, this is where we're headed. We're going to see Jesus talk about the desire for greatness, the delusion of greatness, and the design of true greatness. The desire for greatness, the delusion of greatness, and the design of for true greatness. Let's begin. The desire for greatness. So as these disciples of Jesus are walking on the road, on the way up to Jerusalem, two disciples, James and John, they they happen to be brothers. They go up to Jesus. Jesus is in the front. They run up to him. They pull him aside and they say, in verse 35, teacher, we want you to do whatever it is that we want you to do. They're they're very sort of brash in this question. Jesus, we want you to do whatever it is that we want you to do for us. And Jesus responds so graciously, sure, what do you want me to do for you? I'm sure James and John were surprised by his response. 
the openness of it, but they respond and say, all right, uh, grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left when you come into your glory. What do they mean by sitting on your right and left? What does that mean? Well, for James and John, who were Jewish followers of Jesus, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the, the anointed one. This, this idea in their Jewish tradition that said God had anointed this individual and sent him with the explicit purpose of marching into the capital, driving out their oppressors, the Roman army, establishing a new kingdom, and then sitting down and ruling as a righteous king. James and John said, Jesus is our Messiah, and we are marching up to Jerusalem. And I know that when we get to Jerusalem, it's all going down. Jesus is going to pull in his forces. They're going to drive out Rome, and he's going to establish a kingdom. He's going to sit down in glory. And Jesus, we want to be part of it. To, to sit at the right hand or the left hand of the throne was to sit in second in command and third in command over the realm. James and John are saying, Jesus, when you come into glory, can we share in it? Can, can we join you in your power, in your position, in your prestige that you are going to enter into? They're asking for greatness. They're asking to be great in the kingdom. They're saying, yeah, Jesus, you can stand up on the podium and have gold medal, but can we have silver and bronze? Can we stand up there with you and be gloried? They want to be great. And who can blame them? Like, we celebrate greatness when we see it in other people. Yeah, we give out medals to athletes, but you know, we also give out Nobel Prizes to the greatest thinkers and writers and scientists in the world every year. We, we give out Oscars and Tonys to the greatest actors and directors. We give out trophies and, and rings to Super Bowl champions. We celebrate greatness as a culture. We recognize it and we honor it and we glory in it. So no wonder they wanted to be great. James and John wanted to be great. Do you want to be great? What does it mean to be great for you? I think depending on the culture that you come from, the family of origin that you grew up in, that definition of what does it mean for you to be great, well, it changes. For me, and, and maybe for you, like to be great, what was to go to school and get a degree and land a great job, find a spouse, settle down, raise a family. That was my greatness. What, what was it for you? I, I was thinking the other day, the difference between like what is greatness here in Mayfield Heights versus what is greatness in Tremont. Like people have different views of what does it mean to be great. Settling down, raising kids, or, or living what, whatever life I want to live, going and doing this and that. What does it mean for you to be great? 
What is your definition of greatness? I don't mean to trivialize those aspirations of greatness. I, I actually think that a desire to do great things, a desire to be great, I think that's a good thing. I think that's actually part of what it means to be human, is to have this desire to do great things. If we think about our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, when God created them, he put them in the garden and he gave them a job. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it. And what, what he meant by that was build and grow great families. Go into the world and cultivate great culture. Work hard and produce great things. But on top of that, they were given this great responsibility. Go into the world and fill it with my glory. On top of doing all those great things, they were said, they were told to go into the world and glorify God. I can't think of a greater job than that. To bring glory to God in everything that we do. That is a great calling. And look, that desire for greatness continues today. That desire to do great things for his glory. That was part of why I wanted to plant this church. I wanted to do great things for God. I had these great dreams when we started that one day we would own our own building and that we'd use it to bless the community where people would come in for programs and conferences and meetings and classes and we would see life changed in a building. I, I had great dreams that we would be seeing dozens and then hundreds of people coming into our doors who would hear the message of the gospel and trust in Jesus and have their lives changed. Wouldn't that be so great? I had dreams that all across east side of Cleveland, there would be dozens of groups of people meeting in homes, inviting neighbors to witness and experience grace and forgiveness and transformation. Wouldn't that be great? I had dreams that we would be known for giving so much money as a blessing to those around us across the world, that we would be known for our great generosity. I have these great dreams for God's glory here through this church. When you heard about Story Church, when you first visited, what did you want it to be? What, what, was, what was captivating of, about that vision of starting something new, of being part of something truly great for God? If Jesus could ask you, what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that here? What do you want me to do for you? Look, none of those dreams are, are bad, and I still have many of them. But I think that this passage forces us to ask, for whom Am I seeking to be great? Like if Story Church ever grew to that kind of greatness, 
would it really in the end be for the kingdom of God or would it be for me? I have to ask myself that question. If, if Story Church grew and became the great dream that you want it to be, who would it be for? Would, would it be for you? Or would it be for your neighbors? Would it be for God's glory to introduce lost people to Jesus? We have this desire for greatness, but we have to ask, why do we want to be great? Who are we wanting to be great for? It's not wrong to have this desire for greatness, but also Jesus wants us to see the delusion of that greatness. He wants us to see the delusion of that desire. Jesus responds to their request for greatness by saying in verse 38, you do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized in the baptism for which I am to be baptized? Jesus is here referring with the cup and baptism to his suffering. Uh, he's going to have the cup of God's wrath poured out on him. He's going to be immersed and overwhelmed with the suffering of dying on the cross. James and John are delusional in their assumption that when they get to Jerusalem, they are going to experience victory. Rather, three times in the Gospel of Mark, and right here in chapter 10, Jesus has told them exactly what is going to happen to them when they get there. Look back up at verse 33. The Son of Man, again, that's Jesus. He's saying, I will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to condemn me and kill me. They're going to deliver me over to the Gentiles. They are going to mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me. These disciples have heard this again and again and again, and they still do not understand what is going to happen to them. They are delusional. They simply cannot understand it. They've heard it again and again, and they don't really hear it. I was reminded this week of a strange internet phenomena that took place in 2018. You, you might remember it where there was an audio clip that was spread around the internet. And as people would listen to this audio clip, the world was divided on what this person was really saying. Because when some people heard this audio clip, they would hear a man say, Yanny, Yanny, Yanny. And when other people heard it, they would hear the man say, Laurel, Laurel. Lord, you remember this? Well, if you haven't, go home, go to YouTube, type it in, Laurel Yanny. It was bizarre. People were hearing the same thing again and again, and yet everyone was divided. Do you hear them say Yanny, or do you hear him say Laurel? Listen, Jesus has been saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer. We're going to be mocked and flogged. We are going to suffer. Laurel, Laurel, Laurel. 
James and John, all they hear is, we're going to win, we're going to conquer, we're going to be victorious, yanny, yanny, yanny. They were delusional. They heard it from Jesus' mouth, and yet they did not believe it. They were delusional in thinking that Jesus' mission was to come and establish a worldly great kingdom where the disciples would be entitled to comfort and privilege and power. Look, that hope continues today. There are many Christians around the world that were told that if you trust in Jesus, your pain of poverty and sickness will go away if you have faith. We want comfort and ease. We want victory. But Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you don't get those things. Those aren't promised to you. But instead, there is a guarantee. You will face trials. You will face persecution. You will suffer as my disciple. That is the only thing promised. Look at what Jesus says in verse 39. The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. He says, James, John, you will be great. Yes, but that greatness will only come if you follow me into suffering. And we know from church history that that's exactly what happened. In Acts 12, we read that James, the first apostle, is killed for his faith. And then in the book of Revelation, John, he is exiled by the Roman government. Everything he ever owned, everyone he ever loved, taken away from him, exiled on an island, left there to die. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to follow him to Jerusalem, to the cross, into suffering. But man, James and John, yes, they did suffer but on the other side of that, they entered into glory. The path towards greatness goes through suffering. Jesus is telling us, if you want to be great, then you need to follow me through suffering. Get rid of your dreams for comfort, your desire for power and privilege. Take the road that leads to the cross, because on the other side of the cross, you will be welcomed into glory. I read a tweet yesterday from someone close to the leaders of the underground house church movement in Afghanistan. We all know right now there's a lot of stuff going on in Afghanistan. U.S. troops are pulling out. The Taliban is rising and taking city after city. I just read this morning that the president of Afghanistan is getting on a plane and leaving the country. It is not good. But this tweet said that the leaders of this underground church network in Afghanistan just this week received a message from the Taliban saying, we know where you are and we know what you're doing. We're coming. To which the leaders said, we're staying put. 
because they know that to be a disciple of Jesus is to choose the path of suffering because only through suffering do we enter into glory. Are you suffering for the kingdom? I mean, what would that even look like for us today? What, what preference or position or power are you willing to give up what, what discomfort are you willing to endure for the sake of doing something great for the kingdom of God? Seriously, are you willing to give up your reputation at work by engaging in a serious, real conversation with your friends there? Like, Are you willing to risk what they might say if you begin to ask them about their life or about their fears or or their loves or about their faith? Are you willing to give that up for the sake of doing something great in their lives for God's kingdom? Are you willing to give up preferences for the greatest and most perfect church Are you willing to put aside what we might look like or sound like or operate like for the sake of being part of a community that truly loves one another and invites neighbors to experience the grace of God, that thing that they're so longing for, the thing that they were made for that they do not yet know about, but they can hear it here? Are you willing to say, I don't need the perfect church because I have this church that God has brought me to? Are are you willing to give up your Sunday? The one day of the week where you can rest and do whatever you want, are you willing to give that up to be part of this worshiping community? To come here and say, I belong to these people. I need these people. These people need me. Maybe that means setting your alarm clock earlier on Sundays or or doing the stuff on Saturday that you want to do on Sunday. What would it look like to give up rest and comfort and time off for the sake of building the kingdom of God? Do not fall into the delusion that greatness as followers of Jesus means comfort and power and position Jesus is telling us if we want to be great, we have to follow him on the path of suffering. Finally, Jesus teaches us the design for true greatness. Look at verse 42. Jesus says that you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Jesus is saying that disciples of Jesus are called to live in such an alternative reality that even the way we think about being great needs to be radically different than the definitions that the world gives to us. 
You see, both in Jesus's day and in our day, greatness leads to viewing ourselves as being above other people, lording our power over others, looking down on others. We turn our backs away from those who are in need. We exploit people and use them for our own selfish desires. That is the way the people of the world view greatness. But Jesus says, this shall not be so among you. Among us as Christians, among us as disciples of Jesus, among us as the church, we are not to adopt worldly definitions of greatness, but look at this design, this new design for followers of Jesus. What does it mean to be truly great? And Jesus tells us, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. True greatness in the kingdom of God is not comfort or power or privilege. True greatness is humbling ourselves to the point of being a servant, lowly, oftentimes invisible. True prominence in the kingdom means working not for your sake, but for the benefit of others. For disciples of Jesus, real leadership means serving everyone. This is the kind of greatness that Jesus wants to see formed in his disciples. And we are to look at the life of Jesus as our prime example. All throughout his life, Jesus rejects worldly standards of greatness. He was born into a manger to a poor family that had to flee as fugitives. He was raised up in Nazareth, this backwater town that no one had ever heard of. He didn't go to rabbinical school. He didn't move to the big city to make a name for himself. He stayed home. And then when he did come into ministry, look at the people that he asked to come with him. Fishermen, they were unskilled, uneducated. They didn't go to seminary. They were fishermen. And what did he do in his ministry? He didn't go to the big cities and do miracles and draw a crowd and say, look how great everything is. He went from village to village helping out those who were physically and socially marginalized. No one had even heard of them. Even as people started hearing about Jesus, what did we see him do? He'd pull away. He'd say, don't tell people what you just witnessed. And what kind of impact did he have? When he went home, his neighbors, his friends, even his family rejected him. One of his closest 12, Judas, betrayed him. And when he died on the cross, the other 11 scattered. Look, if we want to look at the life of Jesus and say, was he great? According to the world, no. Not by any definition of the world. But praise be to God that he gives us another definition 
of greatness. To be great in the kingdom is not to amass power, but to serve. We are going by that definition. Jesus Christ is the GOAT. He is the greatest of all time. He is the one that served. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus gave his life as a ransom? You might hear that word today in reference to a ransom note. Like in the movies, when the bad guys kidnap someone, they write a ransom note and give it to the family and say, hey, if you give us this money, we'll release the person that we took captive. Well, in Jesus' day, a ransom, yeah, it was a, it was a sum of money to pay off someone's debt. It was a sum of money to sometimes buy back a prisoner of war. Most often, a ransom was a sum of money that would purchase a slave's freedom. That you would give this money as a payment for a life in return. Someone who was a slave, a servant. And here, Jesus is talking about us, you and me. You and I who desire to be great, we have taken that desire and we've become enslaved to it. We've become enslaved to this desire to be great, to lord it over, to to self-promote ourselves, to be self-centered, to be self-fulfilling. We're tricked into this delusion. We desire comfort and position. We desire greatness, but we desire greatness the way that the world defines it. We are slaves to that desire. And because we are slaves, we need someone to pay our ransom, to set us free. Jesus says that is why he came, to give his life as a payment for us, to buy us back to himself. And he did that with his own life, by drinking the cup of God's wrath, When he suffered on the cross, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 says that Jesus, he had power, he had position and status, he was up in heaven with his Father, and yet he did not count that comfort something to hold on to, but emptied himself, becoming man, humbling himself to the point of being a servant being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because Jesus humbled himself to death on the cross, the Father raised him up, exalted him back up into glory so that at his name, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth will declare he is Lord of all. Jesus is the greatest of all time because he came and became the greatest servant of all time. He gave up his own life as a payment for ours. Jesus is telling us here that if we want to be great in the kingdom, there's two things that we have to do. First, we have to need, we need to be redeemed from our delusional desire for greatness. And then second, we need to look to Jesus as our example of greatness, defined by humble service. 
what would make us great? What would make Story Church great? What, what would make us a great church that we are willingly and lovingly inviting people to? What would make our church great for the kingdom of God? Like, I, I hope that one day we have all of those things that we dream of, but that alone won't make us great. What will make us great is if we become a community of disciples laying down our preferences, our positions, and our power and serving one another. That will make us truly great in the kingdom of God. Let's pray.